Welcome to Bruin One Ear and Out the Other. I'm Pranav. And I'm Nakin. Our guest on today's podcast is Arpad Molnar, co-founder and owner of Obsidian Ridge Winery. We had an opportunity to talk with Arpad on October 20th about UCLA, his non-traditional career path interwoven with tech and consulting, and his passion for his winery, flight, and education. Pranav, give us a little preview of our conversation with Arpad. Did you learn anything new about winemaking? Yeah, our conversation with Arpad was, was very interesting. Uh, I learned a lot of new things about Arpad in terms of his uh, study abroad, his travels abroad for 14 years, and, and his running with Jack Ma, who, who's the founder, co-founder of Alibaba, which I found really exciting. In terms of winemaking, I never really considered uh, the importance of, of the barrel, and I think for Obsidian Winery and Arpad, like they consider pretty much every aspect of the wine and that's why it's such a great wine. And and the barrel is one of the unique components. So that's something you'll hear about in the podcast where they import the, the, the barrel wood from, but that was the most exciting thing for me. Nakin, what were your thoughts about our conversation with Arpad? You know, I really enjoyed speaking with him and I appreciated the, the advice that he gave uh, which is about, you know, finding something that interests you and, and kind of exploring that. And sometimes that those, you know, lucky opportunities, those interests become passions and, and that really makes your work a lot of fun. So uh, definitely something to think about. And I think great advice for both, you know, students as well as young professionals. So without further ado, here's our interview with our pod. So hi, Arpod. Thanks for joining us on Ruin One Ear and Out the Other. Thank you. It's great to be here. Uh, disclaimer, if you're a freshman or sophomore at UCLA under 21, this episode is not for you. Please return to your scheduled activities such as uh, cranberry juice at B plate. <laughs> All right, because this is a UCLA themed podcast, one of the things we like to do is ask one of the questions that current applicants have to answer as part of the application to UCLA. Uh, we think it serves as a great introdu introduction for our listeners and, and gives them a little flavor for the guests right before we start. So the prompt that we want you to, to answer is, every person has a creative side and it can be expressed in many ways. Problem solving, original and innovative thinking, and artistically, to name a few. Describe how you express your creative side. Wow, boy, it feels like I have to apply to college again. <laughs> um, so I guess I would answer that question by saying that it, um, creativity is like a muscle. Um, I used to think that I wasn't very creative and growing up, um, that's something that I started to work on. And the, the older I got and the more I lived life, the more I realized creativity is a muscle and you have to exercise it and you have to figure out the ways to put yourself into situations uh, to make yourself creative. Um, and that's, uh, that was to me was an epiphany um, because I think people feel like they're either creative or not. So I express now my creativity through work and through play. Um, I don't have one silo of creativity where I'm working at some times and then other times I'm creative. 
I try to weave creativity through everything I do. Um, and that's a sort of state of flow that once you get to is, is a wonderful, is a wonderful place to get. I'm not sure if I answered the question, but, but it is, uh, but, uh, it, it, that's something that really surprised me about creativity. I, I think you answered the, the question just beautifully. Um, so let's go all the way back to, to UCLA. Um, your political science major. Were you able to, to weave in creativity on, on campus then or, or were your muscles still not uh, as strong back then? That's a good question. I, I'm not even sure at that age you even think about creativity as a sort of uh, thing. I mean, you end up going to college, you are building a set of friendships and a life um, and developing a set of skills. And I think the focus at that time in life is really about that, um, being able to create your own life. I just sent my kid off to college. Uh, we just dropped him off two weeks ago um, to the University of Chicago. And uh, um, I realized in seeing his transition that really just establishing your own life is what you do in college, right? Picking up healthy habits, uh, healthy sleep habits, healthy food habits, healthy friendship habits, and you're getting a baseline of skills. And I think that's really more of the focus I would suggest for freshmen than anything else. And, and I think above all, you need to have fun. Um, life is not great when it's not fun. So make it fun, but take it seriously. So that's, that kind of brings up a question we're wondering is, what was your experience academically, socially, and otherwise at UCLA, you kind of talked a little bit about an opportunity to develop good habits and want to get your experience in, in the flavor you had of UCLA when you were there. So UCLA was a big place. Um, and I came from a small high school. My graduating class was 72 people. And I really wanted to expand that horizon. I specifically picked a larger school to have a broader social set, to meet people that I'd never encountered before. And I went to a wonderful high school, but if there was one knock on it, it is that it was safe and it was small and uh, everybody was supportive and everybody was smart. <laughs> and um, that's just not the real world. So I really appreciated going to a larger university where um, there, was, there were people who had thought differently and did different things, um, some of which I agreed with and some of which I didn't. So it was just an incredible experience to have that contrast. And, and Berkeley was a little too close to home and I loved California. So uh, UCLA seemed like a great choice. Awesome. You mentioned that you, you probably took some risks at UCLA being a, a campus that pushed yourself to think outside of, of the walls you grew in, um, in, in your smaller town and in, in your high school. What were some, some examples of maybe clubs or, or instances where you felt that you were pushed to your limit? So I quickly figured out that you had to break a large place down into smaller units. Um, it's easy to get lost uh, in a larger place. So it sort of built, and I probably didn't do this consciously, but I skied for the UCLA ski team. So that was a smaller group. That was an athletic endeavor. I joined College Honors, which was, um, I don't know if they still have it, but it was a uh, and a chance to do smaller classes and, and, and get an honors distinction. So that was a, you know, that was a great thing to do and it pushed me academically. Um, and then socially I joined a fraternity 
Uh, I never thought I would join a fraternity. Um, I still don't consider myself a fraternity person um, at all. Uh, but as it turns out, I ended up making some great friends and some of my best friends um, from there. Uh, so uh, I would say that I was surprised by how and where I would find friends. And it was all based on breaking it down and making it small units. So you were studying political science at UCLA. And were you thinking initially a career in law or public policy? Or, were, or was political science just something that you were interested in? Good question. Uh, so um, I remember applying to the Brookings Institution for a summer internship. Uh, and I actually, for some reason, either didn't get it or I didn't end up going. I thought I would do some combination of international relations, uh, diplomacy, something in that, in that realm. One of the other schools I looked at was Georgetown Foreign Policy School. Um, and, you know, strangely, uh, it was an interesting time because the early 90s, the wall had just come down. So my parents are originally Hungarian. They escaped from Hungary in 1956 during the revolution. So it was incredibly uh, fertile time. Uh, politics were changing globally, and I was really interested in that. Um, I had grown up with an international family. And most of my family's from Europe. And so it was just a natural uh, thing for me to do political science, particularly global political science. So it was, uh, and UCLA has got an incredible department uh, for it. So it was, a, it was a great fit. And to this day, I have to say I'm a little less interested in politics currently. It's a little hard to, a little hard to digest these days. Um, so I do a little less news reading uh, just to keep the sanity, but I'm still deeply interested in it. And actually the work I do, strangely, is, is global. It has to do with cultures and it has to do with, um, you know, not as much the policy stuff, but, but more applied things. Um, so kind of jumping off some of the things that you, you mentioned in, in your last answer, uh, were you able to study abroad then at UCLA and, and really put into uh, in real life kind of what you were studying? I did, and, and, but this is something I would just advise everyone to do. If you had the chance to study abroad or spend a semester abroad, do it. So I spent my first quarter of my senior year in Budapest, and it was a program that had um, mostly college kids, mostly University of Wisconsin and University of California, uh, studying um, at the Karl Marx University in Budapest in, um, in the fall of 1990. Uh, the wall had just come down a year before, and it was an incredible fertile place. Uh, it attracted an incredible group of people that came and were trying to build a new society and a new, a new system um, in the sort of debris of communism. So studying abroad was such a rich experience. Besides the fact that we would travel on the weekends and it would cost us a couple dollars uh, to travel and a couple dollars to stay somewhere and we'd end up in Prague and, we'd sit down and they were beers were 10 cents a piece. So it was, it had its uh, other advantages. So let's stay on the topic of beer. <laughs> You're in a frat and, and if I remember right, uh, Obsidian Winery, which we'll get to, to later, uh, gets its barrels from, from Hungary. Kind of the thing that Nakin and I were talking about is, is beer pong is such a culturally uh, high, or, or it's a, has a place in, in, in college culture. Whereas wine doesn't really have a game of its own. Um, 
any thoughts on, on that being a wine guy and having a wine business? Yeah, it's, it's actually really interesting. So fundamentally, I would love to break the barriers down between beer and wine, so to speak, or I'd like to break the barriers down between people and their experiences with wine. Um, so I'll give you a great example. Yesterday I hosted a, we had a big, uh, like 35 person sit down, uh, wine lunch in our vineyard in Poseidon vineyard. And in the morning I hosted about 10 of people in my cycling group. We did a big ride and most cyclists are beer drinkers. I mean, at the end of the day, going along bike ride, you want to drink a beer for good reason. It's got some good, um, nutrition in it and uh, it's refreshing. But I think people have this idea that wine is something that is fancy, that they have to do in a certain setting, uh, that they have to have some reverence to, uh, that they have to feel, um, you know, that there's sort of snobbiness to it. And so we literally set up a big table in the, in the middle of the vineyard. We're sitting in, you know, we're like, there's, it's on dirt. Um, and we're approaching wine in the same way you would approach a beer, which is like a beer garden with uh, in a way to make a social connection, understand where it comes from, but take out all the pretense of it. Uh, that's what we fundamentally do. That's the experience we're trying to create with wine. Uh, we had this, um, one of the a great compliment we, we got once we have a Mercedes Sprinter van that we take from town to town. And one of our distributor reps said, Oh, I've had, I know a lot of beer companies that have these Sprinter vans and they sort of go around with it, but I've never seen a wine company do it. And I was like, bingo. I'm like, that's exactly what we're trying to get to, um, which is to not to break all that stuff down. Now, having said all that wine is, um, it's a more sophisticated drink from a palate perspective than beer is in a way. So I don't expect people in their, in college to be, you know, having, you know, it's a, it's a, it's the best way to say it. It's a, it's, it's a, it's a journey to get from beer to wine, but you need to follow that journey however quickly you want to take it. Um, but you'll get there eventually. Um, so uh, in, in college, I drank beer. <laughs> so your journey wasn't linear to the winery. It had stops from UCLA to GE to going to Harvard Business School to a couple of uh, small tech startups. You want to walk us through maybe uh, the start of that journey from being a poli sci major to working at GE? Absolutely. So I got out of college uh, in June of 1991 and decided to travel. Actually, I got a job with GE and the job started in Cleveland, Ohio. Uh, I traveled for about three months and this is something else I recommend. I put a backpack on my back and went through Japan and Malaysia and Thailand, Singapore, down through Australia, Fiji and back and highly recommend that kind of journey for everybody if you have the chance to do it. I got to Cleveland on December 28th. Uh, it was dark it was snowy and i was working in a industrial plant this was the last days of ge lighting not last days maybe last decade um and it was in the industrial midwest and the computer had knocked out uh, a lot of jobs uh, all the counting staffs had gone i was in their um, financial management program which is their cfo training program so it was a wonderful contrast to the sort of warm and cozy la <laughs> experience that i had but it gave me a set of skills that were um, invaluable and working for a larger company for those first two or three years was invaluable because of the resources they have to train you. I got incredible training. 
And so after about a year and a half in Cleveland, they shipped me over to Budapest, which is where I eventually wanted to work. They had acquired a company in Budapest. And I worked there for about two years and quickly rose up the rank, so to speak, because there was um, a sort of a talent gap. And that's the other thing I would advise people when you think about their career, you know, figure out what your specific skill is and go to a place where you don't have as much competition um, as other places, because it, it really allows you to get an enormous amount of experience early. Um, and so they're just, you know, so by the time I got out, I was 24 and I was, um, running this $50 million product line, which is, uh, which was at the time I called a compact for us a light bulb. It was the first sort of eco light bulb, um, that came out in, in, the, in the early nineties. And that's an experience I just never would have gotten had I not sort of taken that risk. So that was the first few years back to business school in the mid nineties and then ended up in New York at the Boston Consulting Group uh, doing strategy consulting for about a year in the late 90s and then off to tech. So when you were working for uh, BCG and doing the consulting, were you living that consulting lifestyle Monday to Thursday, flying out to a client Friday back at the office? And was it constantly like traveling and busy? Uh, I had a lot of clients in New York and I was based out of New York, so that was nice. It wasn't as much travel. But I think I quickly found out that I was not a consultant. <laughs> I was a doer. I like to do things. I like to build things. And it felt really empty. Um, it's really interesting work, but it felt really empty to just sort of give general advice that ended up in a paper stack and somebody either looked at or didn't look at. Um, that's, that's a fair assessment. Have you seen the, uh, I, I've heard from friends that that can be the case. Have you seen the show or heard of the show House of Lies? I haven't. Uh, so it, it chronicles um, a consultant working for Booz Allen, and he describes the show as kind of a, a parody of the consulting world and kind of describes some of the, the major challenges with it. Um, so it, it's funny you mentioned that. I think, I think the, so the actual experience of having done it was invaluable for me. Had I not done that, I wouldn't have come to that conclusion. And I think, you know, ultimately you want to do things that you're not good at or you don't feel good about because it, it helps you narrow and define the things you are good at and the things you do like. So, um, you know, I, I'm just grateful that I did it. Um, and it's a phenomenal firm and, uh, I love strategy. So it, all the other things were great. So you then went from BCG doing this consulting work to a few tech companies, and then you transitioned to, to Obsidian. So kind of walk us through that progression. Absolutely. So it was late 90s, 98, and my wife and I, uh, we just actually just gotten engaged. Um, we decided to move to Hong Kong. Um, and actually we moved primarily for her job, and I was interested in doing tech. It was the late 90s. And uh, started doing tech in Hong Kong. Um, and interestingly, at the time, tech was just being born. Uh, there was about 20 to 25 people in Hong Kong and in China doing, looking at internet things in China. Um, this is one of these near-miss opportunities <laughs> uh, that I'm actually looking back great about. One of the people there was Jack Ma, who you might know started Alibaba. But, you know, it was me and... 20 other people sitting in a room talking about the internet. Um, uh, I joined a company that was not Alibaba uh, 
and worked for it for a couple of years. And actually in hindsight, I'm just grateful that I didn't end up, and this is going to sound really strange, but didn't end up at a tech company that, um, you know, boomed, so to speak. I came back to the, to the, the, the Valley we lived in Palo Alto for three years and worked for a company called tell me networks. And it was also one of these kind of the first unicorns actually it raised uh, $400 million at a billion dollar valuation in 2000. Uh, yeah, 2000, late 2000. And it was doing about 4 million in revenue. So it was the original, uh, overpriced, overvalued uh, startup, but was an incredible collection of people, probably the best people I've ever worked with. They were phenomenally good at, at, uh, at finding quality people. But it taught me something, um, a couple things. One is that not all that glitters is gold. <laughs> um, these startups are exciting and they're interesting, um, but they're not for everybody. And uh, they have a lot of trade-offs. You make a lot of trade-offs when you work for them. Um, and it wasn't until after probably the dot-com bubble burst in 2001 or so, actually burst in 2000. But by 2001, I had spent two or three years in tech at this combination of this company in Hong Kong and, and Tell Me Networks. And I ran across a book uh, called Fatal Harvest. It was a book about the industrial agriculture and the legacy of industrial agriculture. And I just moved back to California and I started to think about uh, food uh, and beverage and how we interact with it and, um, and what the opportunity just frankly is in it. So uh, that's when I started getting interested in food and beverage. Um, our family had had a, a vineyard that my father had planted back in the 70s. So we had a little bit of it in our background and he had sold fruit to Napa wineries. And so the two just fused my love of entrepreneurship, um, this opportunity around, around food um, and beverage and, the, and the sort of the way it was changing from industrial agriculture uh, times. And the, so we started pursuing that. And then the first year for Obsidian, we made Obsidian Ridge, we made 100 cases in 2002 of wine. So it was, uh, it was, it was, a, it was a very modest start. Uh, uh, so for the viewers who, who keep up, they know I'm, I'm currently at UCLA Anderson uh, getting my MBA. So for me, I'm reading a lot of uh, HBS case studies. Uh, we just read the, the Taryn Swan Nickelodeon one. I don't mm. know if you remember that. Um, she went to Harvard too. So one thing I'd ask you is, as a joke almost, how long until Obsidian becomes a, a Harvard case study? And, and how was your experience there at the HBS school? Yeah, that's a good question. I've actually thought about it. Um, I have a friend who started a winery in Chile at the same time and she went to Stanford and they just did a case on her. Um, you know, the, you have to reveal a lot when you do the case, right? Um, I actually would love to do it. I think at some point, what's interesting to me is how the business culture has shifted even in the last 15 years since we started the company. I will tell you that when I left tech, I moved from Palo Alto up to Oakland um, with my wife and we had two kids at the time, people thought I was absolutely crazy. Why would you go into the wine business? Why would you do this? Um, you know, you have a, a, you know, a degree from HBS, you know, you're not making any money. What are you doing? Right? Nobody, everybody knows you can't make any money in the wine business. Um, and I just got a lot of that. So I had to spend, I had to have some real inner strength to, uh, feel that I could ignore all of those things. Um, 
that speaks to the prevailing culture of business, I think, which is that at the time, particularly people were only looking at a handful of companies, maybe in the Valley or elsewhere, thinking that's all that business was. Um, it's a lot deeper and it's a lot broader. And I now think that places like HBS would be open to having a case study on something like this <laughs> um, uh, because it's not in the prevailing business culture. Uh, everybody sort of wants to do something quickly. And what we're doing is we're building something over 20, 30, 40, 50 years. And that's a very unusual model in a world where people want to cash out in five years or three years or seven years. And so it doesn't get a lot of attention. I feel that business culture shifting. Um, and maybe you see it at UCLA um, where people are looking longer term and understanding that uh, you're really trying to build a life and a business uh, possibly at the same time. I think you're spot on. I think UCLA Anderson is, is kind of learning that as well with, with a couple organizations like NetInvent. Um, I think Mark Benioff up in the, in the Bay Area has been kind of a, a wonderful uh, figurehead for, for kind of social entrepreneurship. Um, so I think you're spot on. Um, hopefully I, I get to read a case study before I graduate. I'm sitting wondering, otherwise um, I'm gonna have to pay for it uh, post UCLA. Right now we're getting them all free. So. Awesome. Well, I, I love the case study method. I think it's a great way to learn. I, I remember all my, a lot of the classic cases and I, and I, and I, and I use them. I, I think about them. Just off that top of your head, which, which case study? Uh. <laughs> <laughs> so there's a great one called Butler Lumber. Uh, Butler Lumber was a company that was doing very, very well and growing rapidly. And then they went out of business. Um, and fundamentally it was a sort of a, a it was about cash flow um, and about how you could be really successful and still run yourself out of business um, based on inventory buildup. Um, and you know, the wine industry is a really interesting business because it combines uh, all sorts of aspects that other businesses don't. So it's capital intensive. Uh, so you have to understand finance and accounting. It's uh, an art, uh, meaning there's design and art and label and presentation. Um, it's a natural product. Uh, so it's, you know, it's, it's, it changes and lives, uh, it's agriculture and farming. So you have a real estate component as well. Um, it's, you need really good sales and marketing. I mean, there's a whole combination of it's consumer packaged goods. It's a whole combination of things that make it a very unique, um, uh, business. You can, you, you need a ton of skills, uh, unlike maybe anything else, but maybe fashions like that or design, but but uh, it makes it very, very interesting from a business perspective. Yeah, no, I think WeWork, if they heard this case study you mentioned, real estate growing fast, kind of taking back this, this past week, I think they, they would have benefited from it. Yeah, it's, uh, yes, it's, things have their natural arc. Um, things that burn really brightly burn out. It's just, that's just, that's just the nature, it's a law of nature. <laughs> So you have to moderate that burn if you want it to last. So Arpad, you just mentioned some of, some of those things that the wine business kind of takes all of these different components that you would see in traditional businesses and it's, it's kind of got a lot of them. I was hoping you could walk through our listeners some of the day-to-day -day operational challenges that exist and kind of what your experience is running a, a winery. Absolutely. Um, so one of the biggest challenges of all those skills that I mentioned is you need good people in each of those areas. Um, we run a very decentralized 
uh, company, we were trying to find domain experts in each of those areas in production, sales and marketing, um, in viticulture and winemaking. And we sort of pushed down all the responsibility to them and give them ownership to do it. So that's a real part of our success, I think. Um, so again, you give a couple examples. Uh, obviously you start with agriculture. So last year we lost our 2018 vintage due to some of the fires because of the smoke. So that was a huge thing that we had to deal with. Um, but we'll survive it. Um, we'll get through it. Um, but you don't ever have real control over it. Um, you have only, uh, cause it's farming cause it's, you're, you're in business with God as they say. Um, so you have to just accept that fact and make sure you insure against it. The, one of the ways we insure against that uh, losing a crop is carry a little bit more inventory so that we don't run out, you don't know, not off the shelf. Um, so we have a very unique model. We actually developed all our own vineyards. We grow all our own fruit and we also own our own cooperage. Um, so back to the Budapest days, my brother was living in Budapest at the same time I was working with GE over there. We found these barrels, a cooperage actually, that makes these incredibly tight grained oak barrels. And we started to import them into the Napa and Sonoma wine industry. And, you know, 20 years later, we now have a business selling about five to 7,000 barrels worldwide. So we're very unique in that we not only grow the grapes, do our own farming and our own viticulture, but we also source and cooper and make our own barrels. So as much as possible, it gives us some control over that process. So we know what our base ingredients are, and it gives us this fundamental advantage from a quality perspective. It also gives us a bit of a cost advantage too, where we're sort of capturing that whole value chain from, from, from vine to bottle and from, you know, tree to finished barrel. Uh, and that's one of the ways, although let me tell you, none of this is strategic, meaning we just started, you know, we, we were doing this barrel thing back in the nineties and then we were doing the, the viticulture. We got back here in the late nineties, early two thousands. And then we said, Hey, let's make some wine. And then it just kind of grew and blossomed from there. But those are some of the ways and some of the challenges we have. So I would say my biggest challenge is where do I spend my time? I could be in a forest in Hungary. I could be up at the winery. I could be out selling wine. I could be, you know, speaking to the press. I mean, there's a zillion things I could do at any moment. And sometimes I feel like I'm all over the place, but I really need to have a lot of discipline to figure out how to spend my time. Besides the fact that sometimes I feel like I don't know what I do anymore. Um, and you know, and so my father reminds me of that. So what do you do? Um, so that's a question I have to grapple with. It seems potentially, you know, going to UCLA, having, you know, tons of clubs to join and, and finding that focus could potentially also, you know, help later on as, as you, know, you have a lot of things going figuring out what to do on, you know, on your schedule. Um, so, I, yeah. I was just going to say, I think the, the thing that I, the thing you learn is you, as you sort of get, get further down your career, is if you're involved and interested in leadership. So I've always been interested in leadership. I was sort of, you know, I was sort of the student council co-president. I, even in clubs at UCLA, I was, did leadership. And, and I was always interested in fundamental leadership. And in terms of what you do, ultimately, you want to provide uh, security for the people that work with 
do. Um, you want to in provide inspiration. Um, you want to provide vision. And you want to make sure that you are making other people better. Uh, I mean, that is literally how I define my job now. How do I make other people better? And in the people that I've talked to, they've always said their best bosses, the best people they work with are those that make them better. And by the way, I would suggest that for all your relationships, um, not just your work relationships, but in every relationship, how do you make that other person a better person? It makes you feel better. It makes them better. And it's just a, it's a, it's a wonderful um, virtuous cycle. Talking, how, how are you going to make me better? <laughs> I'm still waiting. Uh, let's, let's go back to uh, the barrel thing that you mentioned. Um, you source your wood from the Tokai forest, if I, if I said that right. Yes. Um, kind of, how did you find that forest out of all the, the forests in the world? Kind of what specifically drew you? Great. Well, so for all your listeners and all the students out there, life is full of serendipity. Uh, you never know what avenue or what river is going to carry you where. We um, were at Antonori, which is an a Italian wine producer, five, 600-year-old uh, family that has been making wines, and they were using this Hungarian barrel. And the Italians would source out of the Carpathian Basin. So the Carpathian Basin is bordered by Carpathian Mountains and the Alps to the, lap, to the, to the west. And it's a traditional source of oak for Italian winemakers. And so we're like, oh, this, this, where's this barrel from? They said it's from the forest of Tokai. So we went up there and realized there's some really great oak there, but it had been cut off from all their markets because of communism. So luck is the basic idea. Um, but when we went there, we started digging deeper and understood that that's a great source of oak and then reintroduced that oak. And the reason it's such a great source of oak is because these forests have been grown there sustainably since 1769. So the Empress Maria Theresa designated that whole area as a, um, you know, a, a preserve effectively. It was a surf culture or surf society. So she knew that they had to provide employment and stability for everybody. And so they designated the forest um, as sustainable and then and they're on a hundred year cutting cycle basically so it provided jobs and employment and that carried through communism and communism was sort of a command and control society and it never had that rush of capitalism where they're like hey let's cut all this you know let's cut all this forest down and just you know use it now so it, it was this beautiful combination of an incredibly long tradition of making barrels in Tokai they've been making barrels there for a thousand years and uh, a forest that was sustainable and a weather influence, a Scandinavian weather influence that made for a very slow growing oak. The slower oak grows, the tighter the grain, the tighter the grain, the better the oak for wine because you don't get that kind of oak dawn taste, you get this integrated taste and at its best, oak gives the wine mouthfeel, it gives it kind of a roundness to the wine, um, not an oakiness. And if you use wide grained oak, you get more of that oakiness. Um, so that's the journey uh, of how we found Tokai. And that's a little bit of why it's such great oak. And then the last 20, 25 years has been trying to, and successfully, I should say, uh, you know, show winemakers around the world how great the quality of that oak is. And they've caught on. So that's been a success, but it's taken 20 years or more. Yeah, you're, you're right. That sounds very serendipitous, but 
Very fortunate. And one of the things earlier you had kind of mentioned is that, that you do in a unique way is you're, you're kind of covering these different verticals that exist in a winery and barrel making is one of those things. But I, I realized for some of our viewers who are uh, a little bit newer to wine or uh, haven't experienced it, they might not know um, the kind of process from planting all the way to, to selling the bottle. So I was hoping you could just kind of give a brief overview of the, the kind of entire process of winemaking and catch some of us up to speed. Absolutely. So it starts from, you know, planting a vineyard or buying grapes, but let's just say you start from vine. Um, and it'll take you two to three years before you get a crop off that vineyard. Um, once you do, you take those grapes, you harvest. In fact, we're just in the middle of harvest right now. It's just the end of harvest. October 20th will end in probably in about five or six days. Um, you bring those into the winery um, and you put them usually into a tank to ferment. So many people don't know this, but a red grape is uh, clear on the inside and the skin is what's red. So it's the thickness and the skin that gives it its color for red wine. And then those grapes are basically sit in a tank and they're inoculated with a yeast and that yeast converts the sugars uh, into alcohol. And that process of fermentation um, takes somewhere between, you know, usually 10 and 20 days, let's say. Um, so there's not just a fermentation that's going, but the juice is actually picking up color from the skins. And that's what's giving you color and flavor. Those are what's called phenolic compounds that um, effectively give um, the taste and the layers of complexity. And then that is drained off and the, 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 the remaining skins are pressed and that juice is then put into a barrel and it sits in that barrel for anywhere from 12 to 18 months. Depends on which wine, depends on which varietal. And for our Cabernet, it sits there for 18 months and then it um, picks up you know, roundness from the barrels. It picks up some oak flavors from the barrels. Um, and there's a whole process of evolution that happens that you can't really shortcut. Uh, if you do, you're going to end up with a wine that just doesn't have the layers of complexity. And I love beer. I'm a huge beer fan. But there's nothing like wine in terms of flavor complexity and layers that you can pick up in different wines. And it's maybe the most amazing thing about grapes is they can have this incredible range of flavor. And it's, I think, why wine is such an enduring product <laughs> and enduring beverage. Um, uh, the second oldest uh, industry in the world, as we say. Um, and it, it just has its complexity. And then once you're in barrel for 18 months, you drain it out of that barrel, you bottle it, and then it usually sits in a bottle for three to six to, to nine months, and then it's released. So it's a really long process from planting all the way through bottling. You're talking about five or six years if you have new, new, new grapes or new vines. And then if you go all the way back to the forest, it could be like an 80-year process because that tree started growing, you know, 80 years ago or 100 years ago. So sometimes you have a glass of wine now in 2019, that tree started growing in, let's say, you know, 1930. So it's a long, it's a long process. Wow. So when you're talking about the, the, the oak trees in Hungary, uh, the, the surf culture, uh, it, it, I had to take a step back. Being from California, going to school in LA and in the Bay Area, I immediately thought of surfing. Right. S-U-R-F, like uh, in the Bay Area. And I'm like, in Hungary, I've never heard of that. <laughs> I went back a little bit to school and I remember the surf. 
like the kingdom, the landlord, S-E-R-F. So for our listeners. <laughs> that's right. I should also probably say surf, uh, not culture, but surf, uh, surf society, right? Political structure. That's a better one. My, yeah. So yeah, the, there's. <laughs> what's unique about uh, Obsidian Winery? You guys are a little bit north of Napa. Uh, there's no surf society up there, but maybe a surf culture uh, being two hours from the beach. So uh, City Ridge is incredible property. It's something that we found in 99, 2000. So after my brother and I had moved back to, uh, from Budapest to back to the Bay Area, um, and I had gotten back in you know, 2000, we planted this vineyard. This was high up in the Mayakamas range. So at the time, there was a lot of planting going on in Napa. And uh, we were just looking north of Napa. We thought, if you can grow great grapes, grapes in Napa, you can probably grow them just over the county border. You know, grapes don't really know what county they're in. They care about uh, weather and temperature and soil. And so, again, total serendipity. We found an old abandoned walnut orchard. And it was uh, up at 2,600 feet elevation. It looks over a volcano. And the soil and the temperature was just about right. Uh, interestingly, I think global climate change has also pushed things further north and higher up. So had we discovered this 20 years before, probably wouldn't have gotten the ripeness because what you want is you need a growing season. If it's too cool, you're not going to get the ripeness you need and the grapes won't physiologically develop to the right point. And, uh, as it, as it happens, we are now incredibly well positioned for climate change um, because we're higher up and further north than anyone in that area. Um, and, and so what you get when you have that kind of uh, temperature and really what you're looking is for diurnal swings. So the key to good, one of the keys to good um, viticulture, good, good grape, uh, results is swings in temperature. So you need it to go from, let's say, 95 degrees in the day to 55 degrees at night. That's a 40-degree swing. You get that at altitude because there's less moisture, there's less heat retention, um, and that swing allows the acidities in the wine to be preserved. So this gets a little complicated, but basically your mouth and your palate is looking for flavor contrast. So you want a little bit of sweetness, a little bit of fruit, but you also want some acidity and freshness. It's why dark chocolate is more or it's better than a Milky Way. Milky Way is like all sweetness. Dark chocolate has sweetness, but it also has some structure to it, what we call structure, some tannic structure, some acidity, some of that contrast. Sweet and sour is in the same category. Um, that's kind of what the palate wants. And Obsidian Ridge has that. It has that in spades. And it's why it's gone from 100 cases to, I mean, last year we did about 20,000 cases of Obsidian Ridge just over. So it's been a great growth story as well as a lot of fun. Wow. So I, I think that was a really interesting kind of walkthrough of some of the, the taste profile and what makes Obsidian Ridge unique. I was hoping you could tell us a little bit about your winemaker, Alex Blows, and kind of his method and, and style for, for making the wine. And you kind of touched on it a little bit there. So Alex is great. Um, Alex has been our winemaker since 2006. Um, uh, the company was founded by Peter, uh, my brother, Michael Terrian, who was a winemaker at Acacia and Hansel and, and myself. 
and Michael's still our founding winemaker. Um, but Alex came on in 2006 and has really been responsible for the last 13 years. All of our, all of our wine quality is incredible winemaker. He actually grew up on the South side of Chicago. Uh, he was a science major, um, or an engineer actually, and just made his way out, uh, you know, worked actually in a place called Vin Chicago, which is a big a Chicago retailer, ended up working a harvest in Chile and in France, and then came to California because he was just interested in winemaking. He has an incredible palate, um, and he makes phenomenal wines. He's just gotten better and better. Um, and the more experience you have 13 years, you see different harvests and you see, you understand how to work that fruit specifically. So that's another key that we do, which is we just get better at the same thing instead of changing fruit sources and trying to get up that curve again. But the reason he's such a good winemaker, he makes very clean, what I would call clean wine. So he understands what a site um, can bring and he sort of tries to deliver that into the bottle. Um, and rather than sort of people can manipulate wines or they can add acid to wines, there's all sorts of things you can do to wines. We do it all in a natural way. We, we take what the vineyard brings and he really delivers that into, into the bottle. So it's very, um, non-interventionalist winemaking, I guess I would say. Um, yeah. So kind of jumping off that, I think, um, you know, you mentioned Alex has a great palate. He's from Chicago. Hopefully he's not trying to, you know, push the deep dish into the wine. Because I know Chicagoans are always like deep dish pizzas <laughs> best. But you mentioned something about the terroir, the, the, the site of, of the wine and getting that essence. Um, Obsidian, you mentioned it's, you know, 2,600 feet. Is that correct? Up, up in the mountains. Um, there's a little volcanic ash. There's obsidian rock. I think it was on, on the site of a walnut farm. Um, or, or ruins, um, how has that kind of influenced that? What, what is terror? Is, is that something that's measurable? Yeah. Um, so a couple things. One is it's got an enormous amount of obsidian rock up there. So it's one of the rockiest vineyards. We take people, viticulturists from around the world regularly up there. This is, they're like, this is the rockiest vineyard I've ever seen. And the key to that is drainage. So vines don't like to sit in water. Um, they like drainage. They like to make sure, um, you know, they're struggling and they're getting deep and down. The roots are getting deep and down in, into the soil. The other thing is you have, uh, you know, you have harsh climate conditions up there. So it's dry. Uh, you can get heat coming in or wind coming in so that the, the grapes themselves develop a thickness. The skins develop a thickness. Uh, basically think about the skin as, as sunscreen for the pulp. So the skin is trying to protect the pulp and the pulp is trying to protect the seed because the seed is the thing that's, you know, obviously the plant's interested in, which is why it puts out fruit in the first place. So the thicker that skin gets, it gets thick from UV, right? And there's so much UV up there because you're at elevation and you're also getting all this reflection off of obsidian. Obsidian is basically black glass. It's not actually a rock. And that black glass reflects all this UV and you get this thing called luminosity or sunlight intensity. And we talked about earlier, the thicker the skin is, the more flavor and color you get out of it. Um, and not to get too geeky, but you end up with a very small berry because you're not going to get a plump, juicy berry because there's just not enough you know, soil up there to, to create this plump, juicy berry. And you get a high skin to pulp ratio. So you get a lot of skin for a little pulp. And that's why you get that flavor and color 
that you just can't get in the valley floors. Um, so it's an incredibly unique site. We feel very blessed, frankly, to, to farm there. Yeah, um, just curious, are, are the bottles made out of obsidian? That <laughs> Not yet. <laughs> That's something you guys are trying? Obsidian fractures, so it's not like you could melt it down, although I, maybe you could melt it down, that's an interesting idea, but it fractures, it's used in, uh, it's actually the sharpest thing known to man, so you can, it, the Native Americans used it for arrowheads um, and axes, and when you fracture it, it gets down to three nanometers, which is a billionth of a meter. There's, no, there's nothing on earth that you can get sharper, um, so they'll fracture obsidian and use it for high-end surgery. Uh, because you can't actually uh, winnow something down or, or, or file something down to that to that uh, that thickness. So yeah, I definitely don't want to be drinking obsidian shard. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, so then, what's the business of, of wine in terms of distribution? You guys now have twenty thousand uh, cases, or, or was it bottles of wine? About twenty thousand cases. So we grew out of our first vineyard. We had planted one hundred and five acres, and we sold fruit to other Napa wineries of many that you'll know they're very well-known Napa wineries um and uh we grew out of it and this we just planted another uh another couple another about 130 acres um the key for us is we want to provide the same quality as we did when we made 100 bottles right uh, or 100 cases so we can do that because we still own the fruit we still own the cooperage and we'll grow to the point where we run out of our own fruit probably, and that'll be some time. We're now in about 42 states, um, which is really exciting, and a, a couple international markets, um, but, but just start, starting to dabble there. Uh, but we wanna grow things uh, steadily. We've probably grown about between 15 and 20% for about 16 years straight, you know, with some variability, but, but on average. So it's been a wonderful, a wonderful, um, a wonderful journey and but we want to do it in a steady progression so we don't want to double every year we want to just have this nice 15 percent, 15 to 20 percent growth for in perpetuity oh, I, I know you just mentioned you're currently in 42 states do you have thoughts about um like an international market i know you mentioned you had worked with jack ma maybe alibaba is a great way to get your get obsidian ridge out there right <laughs> to be clear, I did not work with him. I just, he was in the same room and I met him a couple of times. Um, uh, but uh, yeah, you know, we, we've looked at some international markets. We send a little bit of wine to Europe. We're looking at sending it to London. London's actually a pretty, UK is a pretty good market. They're starting to understand California wines and, and, and look for California wines. Um, but we'll see, we'll see, you know, we're, we're not in a hurry. Uh, we want to keep that growth. We keep growing here in the United States. What's, what's exciting to me is this is a, you know, City Ridge is not an inexpensive bottle of wine. It's a 32 bottle, our entry sort of Cabernet is a $32 bottle of wine. But for fine wine, that's incredibly good value. So all other high altitude Cabernets are 70, 80, $90. So we effectively are half price with all the quality of a better known brand. And so people discover us and they're like, wow, this is incredible why is it only this amount of money? And we're like, well, we'd like to make a fair return. We don't wanna, you know, we, we'd like to put it in more people's mouth, frankly. So that's been a philosophy. And frankly, I wanna bring it to younger people. Like I, I want the younger generation 
I want millennials to feel like that's maybe a treat, a $30 bottle of wine, but it's not unaffordable. And, um, you know, I think Napa has a huge problem, which is when you get up there, you're going to pay five, $600 a hotel room night. You're going to, you know, you're buying wines for 70, 80, 90, $150. Like who is doing that? Honestly, like there's a bunch of wealthy old white men doing that. And that's just not who we're interested in selling to a, but B that's just not the future. We would like to see, you know, younger people from all sorts of different backgrounds um, come and really uh, have the wine, but also experience the nature we're in. So we, when we bring people to our vineyards, we want, where this is not like fancy tasty group stuff. This is like you're in the dirt is the, like the lunch I described yesterday. You're up on top of this mountain looking over volcano and you're having this wine. That's experience we want to give them. And we want to keep that affordable and we want to keep that uh, approachable. And so that's why we're priced where we're priced. Um, we want all the quality and none of the pretense. Awesome. So in terms of getting wine out to, to millennials and, and, and people who are going to be drinking it for the next uh, you know, 50, 60 years, uh, Nakin and I are, are going to be giving away a bottle of obsidian wine uh, to one of our listeners. So please listen uh, even more intently to the next half of, of the podcast because one of the questions uh, in order to win is going to be pulled from there. Um, and, and that should be a, a good distribution channel. Maybe not, you know, as effective as being in, in a grocery store or something, but we'll, we'll get some wine out to, to our listeners. Awesome. Um, so one of, one of the things you kind of mentioned there was a little bit about quality. And one of the things that comes up in, in a lot of discussions is we wanted to get your thoughts about the ratings that currently exist for wine, um, how you think they affect your brand and, and sales, and if you think they're fair. And I think right now, uh, I'm familiar with a couple of the, the major wine magazines I know do ratings every year, Wine Enthusiast, Wine Spectator, Wine Advocate. Um, kind of get your thoughts on, on those. Yeah, good question. So they don't hurt, um, but the world is moving away from those ratings, frankly. And uh, I, what I find is younger folks, just they're just not that interested as the way baby boomers were. So for baby boomers, it was all about those ratings and all about those points. And it was like, show up at the app, have a, have a dinner with a winemaker and, and then go home with your few cases. That model has changed completely. We've never chased scores and we're kind of glad we didn't. Um, we have gotten great scores. So new news, probably since I spoke to you both about doing this podcast, um, the wine enthusiast just named us in their top 100 wines in the world. So um, I think they value 23,000 wines. And um, they choose 4% for their seller selections. And then they pick a top 100 from there. We made number 42 um, so for our 2016. So uh, that comes out in a week or two. And so are we happy about that? Absolutely. Like that feels like, um, it feels like we're getting the recognition. Um, and, it, and it always, people, you know, people love scores. <laughs> it's great to get A's. Um, but remember that the, what's important is that you're learning, not that you get the grade and same thing we feel with scores. We're happy to get them. We don't chase them uh, when they come. Um, you know, it's great, but I, I do think the world's moving away from that and, and, and I'm glad, I'm glad people are. Awesome. Yeah. For me, it's just, you know, too confusing. Like 
know, do you see five nineties, one ninety two? It's like, what's the difference between a ninety and a ninety one? And, and it doesn't seem like a really good way or a qualitative way of, of of telling you what the line is. You know, it's funny. The same thing with movies, right? Like one person's movie. Some people like comedies. Some people like horror movies. How do you give that a score, so to speak? Um, so the whole, the whole. So the reason scores came around, by the way, is generally America was not a wine drinking culture. So you have to understand that it wasn't until the fifties and sixties that Napa started coming on that Americans even started drinking wine. So scores have been for the first fifty years of America wine drinking a way to give people some confidence and give them some guidance. And as people become more confident and they have more and different wines, they know what they like. They don't need the scores anymore. And I think that's what you're seeing in this generation. Just trust what you like. You don't get scores on food, right? You know, because <laughs> you've been eating food your whole life and you know what you like. So same thing with wine. Um, and and uh, eventually it'll go away. Awesome. So you've been talking about kind of educating uh, the American public or, or the scores are a way to educate the American public about wine. Um, you know, above that basic education, you have master sommeliers where they are the top of the top at, at the wine. And, and even I've seen a Netflix documentary where it's harder than to get into like a Stanford med school or Harvard business school. Like it's such an elite group of people. Uh, can you speak to that? Um, and is, is that an aspirational goal for you? Um, yeah, so the, the, I think there's like maybe 250 master psalms. Um, uh, I thought about it. Uh, it's just life is busy. Um, it would take an enormous amount of effort and energy to do that. The other thing is there are some people who are just, you know, combination of super tasters and also have an incredible memory for this sort of stuff. Mm -hmm. I have friends who are not in the industry who can remember – you know, wine they had and they could place, um, you know, the vintage and even the vineyard. And it's an incredible skill. Um, there's just some natural talent there. I'm good. I have a good palate. I've had to work at it a lot. Um, but that's like a, a whole different level and it would require a whole different um, energy. Uh, I would say that those the gatekeepers um, do provide a useful um thing for the wine industry. They help you navigate what is really very complex product category to be to put in business terms. Um, but I, I'm probably going to stop short of getting that. It's one of the, just a side note is stick to your lane. Like I think that's the, um, get better at what you do well. Um, there's, I went through this a lot when I was younger too, is I'm always thinking about, oh, what, I could do this, I could do this, I could do this. And the more you focus and the more you bring um, strength, the things that you do do, and those could be more widely um, uh, defined. The, I think the, the 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 more fulfilling it is as you as you move on in life. So, uh, we're we're kind of marketing this podcast to to some UCLA students, and so let's say one of our listeners is listening to this podcast, and they've got a first date coming up, and they're a complete wine novice. And uh, so we're wondering if you could give some advice about picking a bottle, a year, a vintage, a type of grape, something for, for a novice beginner to, to kind of walk them through that process. And this is if Obsidian isn't at... <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Well, you know, that's a great question. I, I, I mean, I think it's awful that you walk in, not you, but one walks in and is just intimidated by this list, right? I mean, the, these lists are built in a way to be entirely intimidating. Honestly, I think the person, depending on where you are, the person who's serving you the wine can be a great resource for what you want, right? So break it down. There's obviously white and then there's red, um, but there's fruit forward and then there's more what we call structured, which is a little leaner in its taste. So I am always a big fan of trying to describe what it is that you like generally. Do you like a lot of taste, full-bodied? So that's more of a Cabernet or maybe even a Zinfandel or uh, a Cabernet Franc or something like that. Or do you think like things lighter, like a Pinot Noir, right? So get down to your palate and what it is that you like or maybe what it is that your date likes um, and, and try to describe that um, to the person who's knowledgeable about the beverages that that restaurant carries. Um, otherwise you're just sort of like picking by name and, uh, and, and so very broadly regions, this is actually the world splits in a new world and old world. So in the new world, there's a lot of sunshine, right? California, Australia. So you get a lot of ripeness, you get a lot of more fruit flavors. In the old world, in Europe, it's kind of you know cool and they barely get the ripeness in some years. So as you go to Northern Europe, you're gonna get, especially France and Germany, um, you're gonna get wines that are leaner. And you go to Southern Italy, Sicily, or maybe not Sicily, but Southern Italy, you're getting wines that are deeper and richer because of just the amount of sunshine. So that's an easy way to think about it. How much sunshine is there? And, and therefore, what's that flavor going to come to? But I would, I would always seek guidance. Explain to somebody what you like and then look for that guidance if you can. And then when you start drinking, you just get better and better at, oh, this is a, this is a varietal I like. I like Pinot Noir. Um, you know, I like Chardonnay. I like uh, Albarino. So um, that's the best way to do it. Try. Trial. <laughs> you mentioned all these countries you, you, you've been to and you've uh, probably not flown to yourself, but you're also a pilot. Um, and you fly a diamond, a diamond star. Yeah. Okay. Diamond star. Yeah. So how did you get into to flying? Describe the diamond star to, to viewers who don't know, uh, what, what that plane looks like. Sure. So when I was a kid, I wanted to be an astronaut, um, or a test pilot. Um, and, uh, so I always wanted to fly, I ended up getting, you know, going nearsighted and back then you couldn't fly jets if you were nearsighted. So that, that squashed those dreams. Um, but about, uh, you know, about 20 years ago, I decided time to get my pilot's license right before I had kids and just started flying. And I mean, flying is the best. I love flying. It's freedom and it's, um, it's, it's pure focus. So, uh, there's, there's nothing more sort of mind clearing than, than piloting a craft because you're like, you're all in. Um, I, grew up sailing as well. So I, I have a great love of, of, of piloting. And in a way I think about it as leadership too. You're like have to successfully carry a group of people from one place to the next. And you have to think about weather and conditions and your own physiology, how you're feeling. Um, and those are all things that actually quite relate to wine as well. Uh, the diamond star is a great plane. It's a, it's a, um, a, a pretty modern, really what they call plastic it's made of epoxy so it's not full of rivets and things it's kind of a, a it's a glider base so they it's a company that used to be a glider company that developed these planes 
It's very fuel efficient. Actually, I, I, when I go up to our vineyards, I, I consume less fuel flying there than I do driving there. Uh, it's a straight line um, and it's incredibly fuel efficient plane. So, so it's, a, it's a great plane. You just mentioned that you, you make trips out to, to the winery. Do you have any favorite routes that you fly frequently? Yeah, so over the Mayakamas Range. So the Mayakamas Range is basically the, the mountain range that divides Napa and Sonoma from the coast, basically. So on one side of the Mayakamas is Sonoma Valley. On the other side is Napa Valley. And it is the thing that divides and creates all the, the temperature and all the weather in, in Napa or in the North Coast. And so I, we get to, I get to fly, but I also take people. I take press up there. I take um, sommeliers. Uh, I take some buyers up and over the Mayakamas Range uh, and land them up at Obsidian Ridge or near Obsidian Ridge. And they get a real sense for the topography. So that is my normal flight. It's about a 35-minute flight um, versus about two and a half hours in the car. So it's 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 nice that sounds incredible so what would you give like what advice would you give to, to someone like me for example so i i have like i'm a little bit i have a little fear of heights but i'm interested in potentially i'm thinking of maybe getting a, a pilot's license and, and kind of going through that process what advice would you have for someone kind of trying to get started and interested in, in flying well, the first advice is I do it. Don't ever live your life without doing the things that you're interested in um, and jumping in, you know, taking the leap. You might find it's not for you, you know, but you got to try it. You got to try everything in life. And uh, so go do it. <laughs> um, as they say, there's never a good time. Meaning you're always busy. There's always something. I actually did it when I lived in Palo Alto. I had a, there was an airstrip about a mile and a half from where we lived. Um, so I would do it first thing in the morning. I would go out at 6.37, I could go fly for an hour and a half, get a lesson, and then I'd be in the office by 8 or 8.30. So you have to tuck in these things in the moments that make sense. I'm a big cyclist, and I do the same thing. We started cycling at 6 in the morning with a group of dads um, because we all wanted to get back in shape, and it's turned into a 35-person cycling team. And it all started from two of us just going out, trying to get back in shape. But we did it at six, we still do it at six in the morning, six to 7.30 before everyone else is awake. Um, and uh, I'm digressing, but my point is find the time um, and, and just go do it. Well, I see an epic triathlon that you can start. Cycle, fly, and then step. Right, exactly. There it is. Wow. Try to integrate all parts of my life. Yeah, so I think one of the interesting intersections between uh, flying and, and owning a winery it could potentially be cloud seeding uh, where you mentioned you're kind of in business with God. You can't control certain things. Uh, but I think in, in China and other countries, I think India, we've seen that, you know, people are flying planes and, and kind of manipulating the weather. Is this something you, you've thought about? I mean, I, I have not, I know a little bit of, I don't know much about it. Um, I, I know that they do it or they have done it. Um, but uh, haven't been thrown anything out of the plane. Um, so uh, the, the short answer is no, I haven't done that. But, uh, but um, yeah, but yeah, interesting thought. Well, so yeah, cloud, uh, cloud seeding as a service for, for wineries. <laughs> <laughs> oh, too much on my plate already. <laughs> I can see. So speaking of too much on your plate, um, 
I know that you had an opportunity to, to serve as the chair of the Board of Trustees for your high school, CPS, in, in Oakland. And I kind of wanted to, uh, I, was, I was wondering how you got involved and, and what your experience was like, um, kind of giving back to, to your community and your school. Sure. So I, when we got back to the Bay Area, I wanted to find a way to get, I hadn't lived in the Bay Area for 14 years. I left when I was 18 to UCLA. Got back when I was about 30, 32, and I just wanted to get connect back to the community. And I basically helped them form an alumni association. So they didn't really have an alumni association. And you know, one thing led to another. They asked me to be on the board, and then they asked me to be chair. And so, you know, if you're passionate and interested about something and you're decent at it, you get pulled into these things pretty quickly. Um, I was a chair actually of the board during the, the Great Recession. Um, so that was an interesting, fascinating way to, to bring an institution through a, a tough time. To me, I'm a huge proponent of education. So I both, it was a way to get back involved in community, but it was, um, I'm deeply, deeply committed to um, education. And uh, the, the best thing a young person can do is just learn. So I learned an enormous amount at college prep. Uh, and I learned, and that took me to UCLA, it took me to HBS, and that trajectory of constant learning started in high school, and I wanted to honor that and, um, and give back to that. So it was a wonderful experience, and it also provided a set of, you know, it's leadership. So to me, it combined education with leadership and governance. And good leadership and governance is everything, I, I think. Everything trickles from there. The culture you build at a place and the, determines the people that are attracted to that place, determines the trajectory of that company. Um, and so if you have good governance and good leadership, you're going to get good people. If you get good people, you're going to have a successful organization. That could be a government. It could be a business. It could be a family. Uh, they're all the same, uh, yeah. fundamentally. Yeah, what's, what's the saying? Culture eats strategy for breakfast. Love that expression. We can do culture uh, drink strategy. <laughs> Just some wine thing. It didn't work out. <laughs> I like that. I'm, I'm, I'll, I'll work on that. Yeah, polish that. Uh, so any advice then for, for someone trying to get involved in, in the board? Um, there are wonderful volunteer opportunities everywhere. Like I said, the nonprofits are always looking for help and good leadership. I would not get into something unless you're really pat. Well, I have to be careful about how I say this. Um, you should get into something you're interested in. And if you're interested in it, it may turn into a passion. Um, I've seen a lot of people sit around trying to figure out what their passion is. You're not going to figure out what your passion is by sitting around and thinking about it. <laughs> you just have to go do some stuff and figure stuff you might be interested in and the interest turns into relationships and it really turns into a working relationship with people and that turns into depth and then that depth turns into passion. And I would suggest try a bunch of things. So similar like flying, uh, knocking or, or anything you guys are interested in, just go do it and it'll build from there. Sounds good. So one of the things that we, we like to, ask our guests um, is to think a little bit about their time at UCLA. And so one of the questions we have is, what is your favorite UCLA memory? Well, there's a lot of them. 
Um, it was really fun. Uh, the one that popped out is just standing at the top of Bruin Step right after my last class. And it was just a really cool moment. And um, just, it's just a feeling of, uh, of I guess, accomplishment um, was, was, was great. And one of the things that you'll find in college a lot of times is you start out with, you know, trying to find your way. And I remember I was a good student, but by the time I was a senior, I was getting straight A's. And it's not because I suddenly got smarter. It's because I just got into my flow and I got better at it. And I was doing classes I was really interested in. And so when I stood there at the top of those steps, I thought, wow, this is, this is great. This feels, feels right. Um, I'm happy. And uh, man, it's just, it was just good. I think probably a little bit of beer was influenced in that moment. All right. And then um, the other question we like to ask is, uh, who is your favorite Bruin? Yeah, so I thought about that, and I um, I'm not normally, I don't normally idolize sports stars at all. Um, but I would say Jackie Robinson, who went to UCLA, I think from '39 to '43, is somebody that I think about who just kind of broke the mold. And I'm all about breaking the mold or about taking risk. And and I felt I feel like. That's a, he's just a great symbol for doing something that, um, you know, as the first African-American man to, to play in the major leagues, I felt like that was a risk and um, it was hard, um, but it was deeply meaningful. So it's kind of an odd choice, but uh, that's who I think about when I think of UCLA. No, I think you're spot on. I think he was a multi-sport athlete and, and the barriers he broke, and I think, have created wonderful opportunities for, for many alumni and and people outside of the schools as well. But with that, thank you so much for, for joining us for Bruin One here and out the other. Uh, before we let you go, feel free to give us a 30 second plug for your winery or something else that's going on in your life. Oh boy. Um, I would turn that around and plug you guys. <laughs> I'm, you know, I'm impressed that you guys are, uh, took on to do something like this and, um, uh, fundamentally will build community among Bruins. So that's exciting. As I think I mentioned to you that I haven't been that in touch with UCLA in general. Um, it's a big school. So getting back involved, but that's something like at this point in my life, I'm actually more interested in doing. It's why I want to do this. So uh, hats off to you guys to have an idea and actually going and execute it and spending your Sunday doing it. Like I'm impressed. I'm really impressed. Thank you. Thanks. I think you're the first guest to, to do this. We really appreciate, uh, appreciate that. And uh, one last thing. So as Pranav teased earlier, as a special guest, special treat for our listeners, we're going to be giving away a uh, bottle of wine from Obsidian Winery to the first guest or to the first listener that emails us at Bruin, the number one here at gmail.com. The answer to the following question what type of plane does our pod fly? So please feel free to, to email us. Again, it's Bruin1, the number one, ear at gmail.com, the answer to that question. And just as a disclaimer, in order to be eligible, you must follow us on Twitter and Instagram and show proof that you're over 21. Can't be giving out wine to, to undergrads that are- Might I add, uh, follow Obsidian uh, Wine on Twitter, Instagram, and, and any other social media channels that they have.